You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, has the tide finally turned against Donald Trump in the wake of the Republican convention and some of his more extraordinary gaffes? Simon Carswell on one state which seems to epitomise the change in his fortunes. Scotland's dissenting voice will be heard in the negotiations over Brexit, British ministers have been promising. But like their Northern Ireland counterparts, Scottish politicians remain in the dark about London's intentions and its demands. I talked to leading SNP MEP Alan Smith about reading the runes. And as Paris and France's major cities empty for les vacances and head to the beaches, not least the Riviera, the country's culture wars also go on vacances, embroiling the bikini and its Muslim equivalent, the burkini. Lara Marlowe, about to go off on her own holidays, reflects on the beach wars. There seems to have been a turning point in the Trump campaign in, at the Republican convention. His gaffes seem to be hurting him now in a way that they didn't before. And Hillary Clinton now has some eight-point lead in the aggregate polls. Perhaps for the first time, Trump has been talking about the possibility of failure. Here we have him in Pennsylvania. And we're going to watch Pennsylvania very quickly. We're going to watch Pennsylvania. Go down to certain areas and watch and study and make sure other people don't come in and vote five times. It's the only way we can lose, in my opinion, I really mean this, Pennsylvania, is if cheating goes on. Simon, Pennsylvania's a particularly important state uh, no state really is more central to his uphill climb. It's voted Democratic in the last six presidential elections. So that's going back to George W. Bush. But it was felt that this was where Trump had a real chance. Uh, why was that? The state is central to his strategy, really, because it's kind of fertile ground for Donald Trump. This is where Pennsylvania, particularly, I think you, t- you need to look at two Pennsylvanias in a way. He's very, his support base uh, is very strong in what's known as the T of Pennsylvania. It's the T-shaped central swathe of the state where he's very popular in uh, rural areas uh, and areas that have traditionally voted Republican. And these are the areas that really have been hollowed out uh, by the loss of jobs, manufacturing jobs, the steel mining towns, the uh, coal towns. They, they've all seen huge uh, unemployment uh, increases. And these are the blue-collar workers, the non-college graduates who are really gravitating towards Trump in such large numbers. He won the state very comprehensively in the, uh, in the Republican primary, mainly as a result of his support in these rural areas. Uh, the trouble that Trump has, however, is that uh, a third of the state's votes are are in uh, suburbs of Philadelphia. So he's going to really struggle when it comes to the November election with Hillary Clinton. And if you're looking at the polls in July and early July, you'd seen that Trump could well have been the first Republican to win Pennsylvania since George H.W. Bush in 1988. And now those polls have gone the other way. We've seen polls in the last week showing Clinton with a 10-point lead in the Quinnipiac poll last week, uh, and also last week a poll from NBC News, Wall Street Journal, showing an 11-point lead for Clinton. So it's been quite a reversal for Trump in the last three weeks. And this is a state where there's a relatively small African-American vote, relatively small Hispanic uh, vote, and uh, white people with degrees who might be supporting Clinton uh, are in relatively smaller numbers, though that they're very significant. But th- those those factors haven't sustained his vote. No, and another issue for, for for him is that the support base that he has are in areas that have been depopulated. 
people have left these areas. So the number of voters that he was relying on, these blue collar voters that, that, that he was hoping would come out and vote for him in November, they're not there in the numbers that he needs to win the state uh, and certainly not there in the numbers he needs to uh, counter the votes that are going to be coined to Hillary Clinton from the suburbs of, of, of Philadelphia, the suburbs of Pittsburgh in the west of the state, and certainly in some of the areas like Scranton. Uh, and it was interesting, actually, the Clinton campaign were in Scranton yesterday and Vice President Joe Biden, who grew up, uh, spent part of his youth in Scranton, came out uh, quite strongly against Donald Trump, uh, some very critical remarks made by Donald Trump and his support for uh, Vladimir Putin. And also Biden said that he would have supported uh, Joe Stalin, uh, that Trump would have supported Joe Stalin. But I think what Biden's appearance says about the Clinton campaign is that they very clearly see that this is very uh, strong ground for Donald Trump. Uh, and the fact that uh, Biden has this uh, appeal amongst working class voters and middle class voters in Pennsylvania, he's a very powerful surrogate for Clinton in places like Pennsylvania, where they're trying to counteract this support that he has amongst blue collar workers. Yes, uh, an, um, an Irish element in that too, and, and picking up some of Bernie Sanders' old vote. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of overlap there between uh, Trump and Sanders supporters um, in that uh, many of the people who are supporting Donald Trump uh, were supporting uh, were uh, were against trade deals, much like Bernie Sanders supporters were against the trade deals. And this is all part of Donald Trump's America first message and his attack on globalization, his attack on international trade deals, his attack on Clinton's support of the NAFTA trade deal between Canada, the US, Mexico, and, and also her, uh, although she's come out against it in this campaign, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, trade deal. Uh, this, Trump is really appealing to uh, American workers who would be angry with the fact that these trade deals have cost American jobs. And so he's trying to appeal to those workers and, and trying to point to Clinton's support of these trade deals in the past. There's a sense, uh, if you like, of the theme coming through uh, that Trump is beginning to be seen as too reckless even for the, the blue-collar vote and the democratic message has shifted from he, he's mad, uh, which they were pushing quite much at the, at the convention, to now he's reckless. And is that, that beginning to have an effect? I think it is. I think particularly with his attack on the parents, uh, the Muslim-American parents of this U.S. Army captain who was killed in Iraq in 2004, that's played very, very badly, the fact that Trump has attacked that couple, um, the Gold Star family. And a lot of Republicans have uh, very angry about that. Also, the fact that a large number of establishment Republicans or Republicans from the foreign policy establishment have come out so strongly saying, and really kind of echoing what a lot of what the Hillary Clinton campaign are saying is that this man is temperamentally unfit to be commander in chief. He's not someone that we can have near the nuclear codes. And I think that that certainly is having an effect. Um, but also, I think the, the claims that Donald Trump is making about voter fraud and claiming that the whole electoral process is rigged is kind of like Donald Trump getting his excuses in early and protecting his base as well. And that if he if, as the polls are suggesting, he loses the election in November, he can then claim that this was an illeg illegitimately won election. So it really allows Trump to really make excuses as to why he's why he's losing this election now and why he could lose it in November. Would the the question of fraud is, is very interesting. I mean, this for some time now, Republicans have been doing their best 
to tighten up voter registration rules, uh, quite widely seen as an attempt to keep black voters off the, the voting registers. Um, is there any evidence of voter fraud? Well, there's been lots of reports on this by various universities, um, even in, in Pennsylvania, where he's claimed that there is potential for voter fraud. It's been found to be extremely rare. If it, happen, it has happened, it's been unintentional and certainly not on the scale to affect an election like Donald Trump is suggesting. Uh, but this isn't anything new. Don, Donald Trump has been suggesting that there's potential for voter fraud, as have other Republicans. He suggested in 2012 that voting machines were switching Romney votes to Obama votes. And uh, that was proven not to be the case. But I think this is all part of Donald Trump's strategy, where, like he did in 2011, where he claimed that Barack Obama was not a legitimate president as part of the so-called birther movement, where he claimed that Obama was not born in the United States, shouldn't have, shouldn't have run for president, shouldn't have been elected president, and challenged him repeatedly to release his birth cert. So it, it's part of that claim that this is, if he loses in November, that this is not uh, a legally won election. And it also feeds the conspiracy theories in the hard right of the Republican Party, uh, where Donald Trump would find many of his supporters with the claims that the system is rigged and that the election has been stolen. So he's getting his excuses in now so that if he does lose, uh, he, he can he can make these claims and stand behind them uh, in November. Tim Timothy Egan in a New York Times column uh, last week suggested that the claim that, that, that the election could be lost through massive cheating and a, a warning by one of uh, Trump's uh, aides that they that his supporters will be out and angry on the streets if if he does uh, lose. Uh, Egan was suggesting that this is actually a really ominous uh, development in that previously Republican and Democratic losers in presidential elections have been willing to accept the legitimacy, at least, of the of the election. Trump uh, seems, he says, to be preparing for a a fight on the streets. Well, it's he said this before when he looked like he was going to be challenged in the Republican primary. He said there'd be riots in Cleveland at the convention if he wasn't going to be allowed. It wasn't going to be uh, formally nominated as the party's candidate in the presidential election if he had enough popular votes in the primary and he was blocked by the party and the party officials from becoming the nominee. Uh, so he's simply repeating what he had said in the prior in the primary in the general election now. But I think it is ominous. I think it does uh, create the potential for Trump to feed that kind of anger that exists, that kind of to feel that siege mentality that exists within this very angry minority uh, that he's tapped so successfully in the Republican uh, in the Republican race. And it's certainly it's a very, very small minority in the general election uh, electorate. But it allows him to claim, you know, I'm an outsider. I tried to shake up the political status quo. Um, but I was prevented because of insider rules, by a biased system, by a biased media, uh, and ultimately that this was a stolen election. He can claim that. Uh, he would certainly try to claim that in November if he loses, and that will play very much to what his supporters want to hear. I finally just wanted to ask you about his the connections of his business, of his advisor, uh, Paul Manafort, to the Ukraine, Ukrainian uh, regime. Uh, the old regime, it should be said, and, and very substantial amounts of money being paid to Manafort uh, for advising uh, the, an, the dictator, in effect, in, in, in Ukraine. Do you think that this will hurt him? Um, I think it'll certainly hurt his campaign in, in a sense that I think it could 
cause problems for Paul Manafort uh, if he's shown that he didn't sign up as a foreign agent as he's supposed to do under US law. He's supposed to sign up as a foreign agent if he's acting if he was acting as a political consultant for Viktor Yanukovych, which he was. Um, he had some of his staff uh, has signed up as foreign agents, uh, but he himself had not. That could cause problems for him uh, and he's a trusted uh, advisor to Donald Trump. So I think the loss of Paul Manafort would, would be a problem for Donald Trump and his campaign. I think it, what it does that is more damaging is that it allows the Clinton campaign to continuously continue to attack uh, Donald Trump on the basis of his pro-Russian ties. Um, we've seen in the past the Clintons have pointed out that Trump um, has been a long-time admirer of Vladimir Putin, much as Putin has been an admirer of Trump. He's come out and said that he was bright and talented in the past. So I think that it's going to cause problems for Trump if the Clinton campaign can continue to make links. And this comes just weeks after uh, you had Donald Trump at a very strange press conference during the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia, urging Russian government intelligence uh, to hack into US computers to try to find Hillary Clinton's emails. So it's all part of that uh, strategy by the Clintons to tie Trump to Putin. Um, and I think it will cause problems for his campaign, particularly if Manafort has to stand down. Thank you very much, Simon. Thanks for listening to the programme. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. One of the leading members of the Scottish National Party, MEP Alan Smith, was passing through Dublin on Monday and taking the opportunity to spread the word on the SNP's perspectives on Brexit. I asked him how the Scottish and Northern Ireland Assemblies could make common cause on the issues in the negotiations. Do they have a similar interest? Well, I think there's a, there's a similar interest in the, the very basic level of making sure that Northern Ireland and Scotland's voice is heard within the UK and the interests that both parties have. Uh, are taken due note of. But this goes far, far wider than, than even that. Uh, channels are open to Sadiq Khan as Mayor of London, uh, the Gibraltarian First Minister as well. Freedom of movement for Gibraltar is existential in a way that it's important for the rest of us, but Gibraltar has a pr particular take on it. So huge need for us all to circle the wagons, make sure that the channels are open, uh, which is why I'm here in Dublin speaking to various folks, uh, just to make sure that we're exchanging notes as much as we can, because whatever the future is going to be, we're going to need to make sure that the plurality of interests within the UK and our nearest friends and neighbours uh, is taken due note of. And in, indeed, the uh, idea that uh, there is a London view is not really that clear anyway because th there's at least three ministers pulling in different directions uh, as well as this periphery of of interests. Uh, negotiations are going to be very complicated. Mm. I, I'll confess I still feel very angry about it. I, I, I feel angry about a, a Leave campaign that fell apart within seconds of winning. Uh, the people who threw the UK into the abyss now nowhere to be seen. Uh, ministers in the UK government fighting like ferrets in a sack over who's got responsibility for particular bits of the civil service rather than looking after the national interest. However you define it, they're not doing it. So the Brexit negotiations, we, we really are going to need to keep all of our channels open amongst those of us who can actually all work together. And Prime Minister May had, as I understand, a constructive meeting with Nicola Sturgeon as our First Minister, and she committed herself to a UK approach, whatever that means. So that's good. Uh, your Tisach very kindly raised uh, Scotland's position within the Council of Ministers because bear in mind the position of Ireland is going to be very important going forward because you're going to be part of the 27, where we're actually not. 
So making sure that we're all talking to each other and sharing our experiences as we go forward is going to be very, very important. But all of this is predicated upon seeing some sort of clarity coming out of Westminster and Whitehall. And it, 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 it's, it's a shame for them that they haven't. Now, this country has really pinned its hopes on uh, Britain getting a deal that has been called the Norwegian option, which is the uh, a version of the European Free Trade Association, where by Britain gets uh, access to the European market, but in, in turn has to concede free movement of, of labour. Um, and we think that that would be the option uh, which, would be, which would involve least change and therefore be best for, for the Irish uh, relationship with Northern Ireland, the Irish relationship with Britain. Is that, is that a, a view also held, held in Edinburgh? Well, I'm, I'm close to the Scottish government. I'm not part of it myself, so that, 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 that's above my pay grade to a point. But uh, our starting position is we want to keep what we have. Our, our starting point is that freedom of movement is important to us. Uh, we celebrate the rights of EU nationals to come to Scotland. We celebrate the rights of Scots to go elsewhere in the UK, UK and EU. Uh, and we also want access to the single market. Now, now there are different ways in which that can be skinned. Uh, the position of agriculture and fisheries, which of course is distinct within the Norway model, uh, it would, would not work as well for us as it might for the UK. But uh, a lot of this is going to be, uh, we'll need to see what the UK proposition actually is in order to see what's going to fly. And, and the indications coming out of London thus far is that the Norway option isn't really seriously being considered because they're not willing to compromise on freedom of movement. So there, there, there is scope for uh, some really really crunchy discussions on that. There are different voices coming out of London about that. In fact, there's some suggestions that, that May herself would be more favourable to the Norwegian model where, where other more hardline Brexiters would, would be opposed to, to it. Uh, and, and no sign of a consensus emerging. Well, not thus far. I, I'm, I'm not too good in the criminology of the Puck Tory party, but uh, certainly they, they, they seem to be spending more time knocking lumps out of each other for the benefit of their own grassroots than actually for any uh, take on the national interest. Uh, we will hopefully see some more leadership towards the end of the year. Uh, there, there's also a, really an extent to which the clock is ticking across member state capitals as well. Uh, the idea that the UK can string along not implementing Article 50 until whenever if eventually a consensus emerges. Well, the UK is not in charge of this timetable. Uh, there will be an awareness across the member state capitals and Brussels that, well, so long as there really isn't a UK consensus, let's not, let's not force that. But uh, I, I think that's not an indefinite timescale. So, so in terms of where things are going to be, we really need clarity coming out of Westminster and Whitehall as to what the proposition is. Then we'll be able to see what works for us. And, and we are talking about pressure on, on Britain to trigger Article 50 by uh, January, February of, of, of next year. My, my sense of it from colleagues across Brussels and, and elsewhere is that uh, much as we're really frustrated by the fact that you've just had a vote to leave and you have no idea what you actually want in the leave process, we acknowledge that you've no idea what you want in the leave process. So there will be an extent to which we have a grace period before we implement Article 50. But equally, if there's a, a sense that the UK's languidly just not doing it because we're, we're not minded to, that process can be forced, uh, and, and we, we saw that in the post-Brexit summit where Prime Minister Cameron was there for the first day and he had his tea and then he was slung out and the 27 met to talk about the other one. 
So that's 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 what the future looks like. That that's uh, that that that's the reality of this. So the, the UK is not in a position to hold the European Union to ransom. And the the SNP was arguing uh, before and and after the the referendum that uh, the majority for Brexit should be one that was in each of the four constituent parts of, of, of the, uh, the union that is the United Kingdom. And that that meant that uh, a vote should be held uh, which would be uh, definitive in, in the Scottish Parliament. Is that argument lost? Well, there's been an interesting uh, proposal put forward by Carwin Jones, uh, Welsh First Minister, that, to the effect that the Welsh Senate, uh, Holyrood uh, and uh, Stormont should have votes on whatever the eventual Brexit deal is going to be. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon has, has, has certainly reacted warmly to that as a suggestion. Uh, our guys at Westminster did try to have a double majority built into the referendum itself, whereby you, you'd need to see, and this is the language of federalism, you, which we were promised in 2014 was what we were going to be voting for, uh, had we, as we did vote no to remain with the UK, uh, that there would have been a majority of Scotland, England, Northern Ireland and Wales and a majority across all four home nations. That was rejected by the Conservatives, so we're now in a position that uh, I don't think any of them expected us to get to. But the prospect of a, a binding vote of the devolved administrations, so that, 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 that is part of the mix at the moment, and I, I think the more democracy in this process, the better. But the veto is still held by Westminster on that. It, it would be a political vote, uh, I'd, 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 the, the idea that Prime Minister May would give a legally binding vote to Holyrood over something that she's not started yet. I'm I, I, I as we'd say, <laughs> as we'd say back home. I've only just to turn to the the bigger, the longer term picture for for the SNP is is of course Scottish independence. Uh, where stands the idea of, of another referendum on Scottish independence? Well, there's a lively debate uh, underway in Scotland just now about that, uh, and I've. I've been pretty vocal in calming things down that I do think Brexit has changed the political weather. It's certainly changed the political weather across member state capitals. In 2014, there was a number of other governments, indeed your own included, that were pretty wary of getting into a domestic dispute, about a domestic discussion about independence. Uh, there was a number of people across the wider European continent didn't quite get the why of independence. They do now, and uh, the doors are, are, are much, much, much more open than they were last time round to explain what Scotland's looking for from this process. But, but I'm talking very specifically about status within the European Union, because that could mean a range of outcomes where independence is, and, and, and membership is, a, is independence within the European Union. We reserve our right to do what we need to do for, to, to, to best safeguard Scotland's interests. My party is, and, and indeed I am myself, uh, firmly pro-independence for Scotland. But we're not there yet, uh, and we objectively didn't bring this situation about. We campaigned uh, against Brexit, we voted for Europe, we wanted to remain within the family of nations. Scotland unanimously in every single local authority area voted to remain. 62% is a solid majority. Uh, we expect something different from this process, and whatever that something different is remains to be seen. But uh, in terms of rushing headlong into a second independence referendum, well, I, don't, I, I want to win an independence referendum. I don't want to hold it and lose it. And you're not inclined to follow the Catalans down the road of, of UDI? I, 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 
I don't think Scotland and Catalonia actually have that much in common beyond a desire for independence. Uh, the, the, the domestic uh, construct within the state of Spain, within the UK, is very, very different. We, we, we said in 2014 that we're entirely sui generis. We wouldn't be seeking to establish any precedent in EU law. Uh, Scotland is Scotland, Catalonia is Catalonia. We, we, we will have a, 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 an emphatically democratic process, which is where we're talking about options within EU membership. And I, I think there is a willingness within Brussels to talk about that sort of discussion if we made it binary right now about independence or not. I, I, th I, think, I think that would limit our, our scope for discussion. Thank you very much, Alan. You're listening to the Irish Times. There was a time when local politicians on French beaches were into covering up. There were futile attempts back in the 1960s. I think it was to stop uh, bathers going topless. Now it appears that some local mayors are campaigning to get bathers to wear less, specifically by banning the burkini, a cross between the burqa and the bikini, that some Muslim women prefer to protect their modesty. The politicians claim that the burkini is, like the niqab, a violation of the country's secularist tradition. It's laïcité, as it's called, and three towns are now promulgating bans or trying to close events, including one in Corsica, a place called Sico, where there was a mini-riot on the beach on Sunday. Lara, is this Islamophobia gone mad or, or not? What is going on? Uh, well, it's a continuation of the, the whole debate about women covering themselves, which goes back um, at least 20 years. You'll remember that in 2004, France banned headscarves in schools, and in 2012, they banned uh, full-face veils in, in, in public. Um, it, was re it was really sparked off uh, in the suburbs of Marseille a couple of weeks ago because a, a Muslim women's association wanted to have a private party. They rented an aquatic club for the day, and they hoped to have 1,500 Muslim women come and all dress modestly because there would be male lifeguards present. Uh, there was such a scandal over this uh, that the Muslim association withdrew the reservation for the, for the aquatic club, and they, they just dropped the whole thing. Uh, and, and the incident in Corsica, which you mentioned at the weekend, is actually quite serious. Um, there were three Muslim families at a creek uh, about 20 kilometers away from Bastia. The men were all sort of between 30 and 40. They had their wives and small children with them, and the wives were wearing these burkinis, which to me look kind of like a frogman's outfit, you know, it covers your head except for the face and, and your whole body. Uh, someone, apparently a tourist, started taking pictures of the area. Uh, the Muslim men believed that they were photographing their wives, got angry. Uh, a local boy started filming the thing on his, his um, phone, and the boy was hit in the face by one of the Muslim men. Uh, the the uh, teenagers then went into the local village in Cisco and brought back about 40 people and the riot police, CRS riot police, had to come and basically protect these three Muslim families. They had to separate them from the angry crowd of locals. There were five people uh, injured badly enough to have to, to have gone to hospital. They just came out of hospital yesterday. Then the following day, on Sunday, 500 people, now you remember we had 40 initially, now we have 500 Corsicans, tried to enter um, this sort of low-cost housing area where all the North African Arabs live around Bastia. And again, you had gendarmes and riot police 
separating uh, Muslims from, uh, you know, white, presumably Christian French people. Uh, so it, it almost is, is becoming like a civil war or, or the, the first stages of one. Uh, that mayor of the, the local village who is from the left banned the burkini uh, at the weekend. They've also been banned in Cannes and um, in a, a little town called Villeneuve-Loubet. And now Le Touquet, which is in the Pas-de-Calais in northern France, is also banning the Burkini. Uh, they asked the mayor who, who, who's banning it why he, if, if there had been any cases of Burkinis being worn on the English Channel. And he said, no, not yet, but we just want to make sure it doesn't happen. So it's, it's, this is mushrooming, mushrooming into a huge issue. Uh, the next two government cabinet meetings will be discussing it uh, on Wednesday. Wednesday and then again next Monday, uh, and it's it's just inflaming this general mood of Islamophobia, of confrontation, of escalation between Muslim and non-Muslim French people. How how can you actually ban uh, the wearing of burkini? I mean, is there, are the laws allowing mayors to do, to enact local ordinances like this? Mm, apparently so. The, the ones who've done it so far have said that we're banning it only until the end of the summer and in the interest of public order. They're saying it's a threat to public order, which means that we non-Muslim French people can't resist attacking you if you provoke us by wearing burkinis. So it's very strange to, to ban something in the interest of public order because you can't control your own people. Uh, they've imposed a 38-euro fine, which I thought was interesting. Nobody's actually had to pay the fine yet. Um, I was just listening to... Michel Tubiana, who's ha- uh, head of the uh, Human Rights League, who is virulently opposed to this nonsense, and, and he says, you know, how in the name of what do you forbid someone from wearing what they want to? He's against it, um, and a few other, SOS Racisme is also against it. Um, and one wonders, I mean, are they going to ban habits for nuns, for example? There's an interesting thought. Um, and it, I thought that the case of the, the swimming club in Marseille was particularly interesting because that was a private enclosed area. Uh, you know, you can argue about it in public, but in a private area. And the other shocking thing about this, Patty, is that they're, they're saying several of the mayors who are banning the burkinis are linking them to terrorism, as if, you know, what a woman wears to swim has anything to do with the attacks in Nice and Saint-Étienne-du-Roubaix and, and Magnanville, uh, which were the most, only to name the three most recent, recent ones. I'm quoting uh, the mayor of Le Touquet, who's, who's about to, um, he's called Daniel Fasquel, and he says, by banning this, quote, it is a way of fighting the radical discourse and thus against terrorism. So he's fighting terrorism by banning burkinis from Le Touquet. Extraordinary, particularly as, as you can't exactly see people concealing uh, explosives underneath the, these, yeah. uh, these costumes. And, and what is most peculiar, too, from, from the outside is that we're talking about people uh, on the left and on the right of, of French society involved in this campaign for uh, laïcité. Uh, socialist mayors you've been talking about, but also members of the Le Républicain Party and perhaps not surprisingly the National Front. Absolutely. Um, but as you know, Paddy, laïcité uh, goes back to the law on separation of church and state of 1905. It's a very, very deeply ingrained value in France. I mean, one of, I thought an interesting comment came from Jean-Pierre Chevènement, who's just been appointed by President François Hollande to head 
this, uh, well, re-resuscitated foundation of Islam in France. And so Chevènement is supposed to help to foster uh, a structured hierarchy for Islam in France. And he has already um, really shown his way of thinking by saying that at this time, the Muslims of France must show discretion. Uh, this is his way of asking women not to wear the burkini. burkini. I don't remember anyone in France ever asking, well, perhaps over 100 years ago when, when Catholics felt they were being persecuted. But in present times, no one ever asked Catholics or Jews to exercise discretion uh, in the practice of their faith. I suppose it's a bit like uh, asking women not to wear short skirts because they're tempting men to rape them. Mm, but it's it's all sort of inverted. I mean, when I was growing up, when I was at school as a child, uh, it was the, t the days of the miniskirt, and my school was very strict, and we had to kneel on the floor to make sure that our, our skirts touched the floor. So in our experience, of, uh, in our generation, it was the, the struggle was to, the young people wanted to wear less, and, and more conservative people were trying to make them cover up. And now, indeed, you have French people saying that this is the persecution of women, and that, uh, you know, well, here, I'll give you a quote from the, the Minister for, for Women's Affairs, Laurence Rossignol. Uh, she says that there's the idea, I'm quoting her, that by nature women would be impure and immodest, so one must hide their bodies and close them up. And, and she does make the parallel with a uh, hundred years ago. She said women, and these, these would have been, you know, white, uh, Françaises de souche, as they say, you know, French origin women, uh, who showed their hair in public uh, were, were deemed to be not virtuous. You know, you had to wear a hat. Uh, she says that the burkini is the symbol of a political project which is hostile uh, to mixing men and women and the emancipation of women. Uh, these are fundamentalist, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So people reading all kinds of things into this, and I don't exclude the possibility that there, there, there is an element of provocation on, on the part of the Muslim women who wear this, or perhaps their husbands or, or brothers are making them wear it, which is what um, the, the laic French people are always claiming. But by overreacting to it, by passing municipal decrees and so on and so forth, I think that you just have this escalation, this back and forth, and it just gets more and more serious, and it ends up in a, in a pitched battle in Corsica with five people going to hospital. I think it's, it's a very, very dangerous thing. These are times when we need... Um, peaceful, calming uh, steps. Uh, one positive thing that's being done is a lot of the Catholic Church people, a lot of the clergy are working with their Muslim counterparts, with imams, uh, to, to try to establish dialogues between the faith. Um, this is a sort of positive thing that is being done. There is also an emerging middle class, Muslim middle class in France. And, for example, you have two, two whole pages in Le Monde this afternoon praising these Muslim doctors, lawyers, businessmen, bankers, uh, actors, there are all, all sorts of professions for coming forward and for saying, hey, wait a minute, things are getting very dangerous, let's calm down, uh, let's all talk to each other. There's a strange irony in the whole story that uh, we carried the other day uh, when the Syrian city of Manbij 
was liberated from Islamic State, women came out on the streets and and made bonfires in which they burnt their burqas as a sign of their liberation from Islamic State. And and there's a sense in which we have feminists in France saying we're going to liberate women whether they like it or not. How about your own holidays? You're about to come over here and, and plunge into the Irish Sea. Will you be wearing a burkini? <laughs> no, I will not. Be. I think they're dreadful. I mean, you, you couldn't pay me to wear one. I, I do remember once swimming in a hotel in Saudi Arabia, and that was very, very complicated. Um, <laughs> and, it, and I only tried it once. Uh, no, I, th- I think it's ridiculous. I wear a, a normal one-piece suit, uh, and I, I, as I said, I wouldn't want to wear a bikini for all, all the tea in China. But if another woman wants to wear it, let her do so. I have no problem with it. Indeed. Thanks a lot, Lara, and have a very good holiday. Thank you. Thanks to Simon Carswell, Alan Smith and Lara Marlowe, and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. 